This sermon is entitled, Which Kind of Faith? Which Kind of Faith? This poem is by William Ellery Leonard, called The Bear and the Owl. A famished bear whose foot was clenched within a murderous engine wrenched and bounced about in fright and pain around the tree that held the chain. Emitting many a hideous howl, his state was noticed by an owl who perched above him fat and free, philosophized from out of the tree, of what avail this fuss and noise? The thing you need, my bear, is poise. That bear didn't need poise. That bear needed someone to open the leg hole trap wide enough for him to get his leg out of it. Which faith will it be? You know, God puts a good many uh, trapped bears in all of our pathways all of the time. And they're wondering if our faith is a living faith that will act to help them or if something else, if our faith is a dead and actionless faith, they're really wanting to know. Our passage this morning in James 2, 14 to 26, provides us with three examples or situations of life where the scriptures call you to living faith, to faith that is active and not just theoretical or verbal. And the three kinds of situations we see in the text itself are the following. Men or women lacking necessary food and clothing. We see that in verse 15. Parents who are being asked by God to take huge leaps of faith relative to their kids. That's verse 21. And third, the situation of formerly morally compromised individuals who meet with the living God and who are changed such that they are called to do courageous things. Do you know what the common denominator is between all three of those situations? The need for mercy. And it shouldn't surprise us because the verse that leads into our paragraph for this morning, verse 13, talks about mercy. Do you recall? Here I was with the spray can of mercy last week. James 2, 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so that's the gateway into our verses for this morning, 14 through 26, verses that ask the question of you and collectively of us as a church, which kind of faith will it be? Living faith or dead faith? Faith that takes action or faith that refuses to act? You know, we live in a country, a beautiful country, that is full of beautiful Bahamian people who are asking us as believers and assemblies of us called churches if we have living or dead faith. I mean, living faith that takes action by giving mercy is desperately needed in Bahamaland. Families without basics, food, jobs, husbands, fathers, hope, Families without hope, 
the working poor, crushed by insufficient minimum wages and VAT. Neighborhoods without safety and without cohesion and communication between neighbors. Senior citizens without rest, primarily providing primary childcare in the home. The physically and the mentally challenged Bahamians, largely without acceptance, and in some cases, without homes. The mentally ill, usually without treatment because of the cost of doctors and medications. Children without supervision in their homes after school and on into the evenings. We live in a nation of persons who desperately need the church of Jesus Christ to show living faith, faith that acts. The religious amongst us of the Bahamian people, the religious who are without a true gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And in some cases, these precious religious people are going to churches where the pastors aren't even born-again Christians. The blind, leading the blind. The lost of our country. Without Jesus... Without forgiveness, without hope. For so many reasons, so many Bahamians this morning stand in need of our living faith. A faith that takes action. A faith that is not just talk, but walk. Many of our countrymen are like the little boy who was sent on an errand to the food store to buy a dozen eggs with the hard-earned money of his family. He bought the eggs, and as he was coming out of the food store, something tripped him up, and he fell, and the eggs fell, and they all shattered on the sidewalk. And some people came around the boy, seeing his loss and his fall, and they asked him, is your knee okay? We're sorry, your eggs all broke. And that's all I said. Until one man out of the circle broke free. And he said, I care about the boy's broken dozen of eggs, 25 cents worth. How much do you care? The rest of us. This country has every right to ask the people of God if our faith is living or dead. Active or actionless. It was Friedrich Nietzsche, an atheistic German philosopher who said this, and I quote, if you want me to believe in your redeemer, then you've got to look a lot more redeemed. We've got to look a lot more redeemed. And this passage helps us to know how to look a lot more redeemed. James raises a very interesting question in verse 14 of chapter 2. And it is this question. 
What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's a good question. Really, the question is this. Does saving faith produce right deeds? Does saving faith produce right deeds? James answers his own question in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Listen. Nice sentiment without practical help is no good in the eyes of heaven. It's useless in the eyes of earth. Listen, saving faith produces right deeds. Saving faith, living faith, produces good deeds. Verse 17 puts a name to actionless faith. And the name which verse 17 gives to actionless faith is dead faith. Dead faith. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So God calls actionless faith dead. My father, as probably most of you realize now, is a retired funeral director. My grandfather in heaven since 1985 also was a funeral director. And they were taught at Mortuary Science College when they learned and were licensed to be funeral directors of some basic signs of death. So that when bodies were brought to their funeral homes, they could ascertain with accuracy, is this a dead body or just a body needing resuscitation? So what were funeral directors trained as signs of death? No pulse, no breathing, no response to light shone into the eye, no recovery of a pink color when you press a fingernail hard, no heart sounds, and no eye blank reflex. Those are the signs for a funeral director as to whether a person is physically dead. So the flip side would be there must be also some signs of life. So if the body has a pulse, it's alive. If the body has breath, it's alive. If the body's eye responds to light, there's life. If there's recovery of pink when you press down on the fingernail, there's life. If there's heart sounds, there's life. If there's an eye blank reflex, there's life. Similarly, there are signs for dead faith and there are signs for living faith. And one of the signs for dead, actionless faith is a failure to show mercy to others. That's what verse 13, the gateway verse into our passage talked about. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So one of the ways you know that your faith is dead if you refuse to give mercy to people who you meet. Get dead faith. 
one of the things that little children sometimes do is to catch things in the wild. And our daughter, Joanna, who's a grown woman now, when she was a little girl, we lived on a pond that had frogs. And Joanna would catch little frogs, and they'd be her pet. And she was very gentle with them and made sure they were, you know, moist with water and gave them little things to eat, bugs and so forth. But every once in a while, one of her frogs died. So what she did was she would get a shoebox, and she would line it with paper towels, and she put her dead little frog in the shoebox like a coffin. And she'd carry it around. And Joanna did this because she really didn't want to face the fact that her pet frog died. She transported the little froggy's body around in a makeshift coffin because she was sentimental and not sensible. Some believers for years have been carrying around dead faith because they're sentimental and not serious about the lordship of Christ. Well, the thing about Joanna's frogs, we didn't even always know that one of her frogs died, that she'd made the coffin, that she was toting around a dead frog. We didn't always know that. But eventually we did. (laughs) Boy, did we. Because dead frogs, given enough time, stink. And dead faith in Christians and Christian churches eventually stinks. And so our actionless faith eventually won't pass the smell test. Our actionless faith is, in fact, dead faith. And we can sentimentally carry it around with us for little, in little shoebox coffins, but eventually it'll stink. Now, God in his mercy and omniscience knows that there will be Christians who believe in Jesus for salvation, who have excuses about their dead faith. Reasons that their faith is actionless. And four such excuses are raised right in the text and answered and dismissed right in the text. Maybe some of you or maybe I have used some of these excuses when we've had actionless faith. You ready? Verses 18 to 22 give us four excuses which some believers give for their dead and actionless faith. Here we go. The first excuse is the it's not my thing excuse. Good works, they aren't my thing. Verse 18, see it? But someone may well say to you, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's not my thing is the excuse of some Christians with dead faith. But you know what? It's not valid for one Christian to say, faith's my thing, but good works are not. And it's not valid equally for another Christian to say, works are my thing, but faith is not. Because neither faith nor works are things you either have or you don't have. They're not mutually exclusive things. In fact, we are always to have a saving faith in Christ that is coupled with good works. They're to be welded together. They're inseparable, but we separate them. Saving faith in Jesus is always to be accompanied by good works. For the true Christian, both faith and works are absolutely necessary virtues. It's like asking which wing of the airplane is more important. You need both. 
course, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 are precious verses many of us have memorized. But listen to this about faith and works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Watch it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what for? For good works. We are his workmanship, saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are his workmanship. We've been saved for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the excuse, it's not my thing, these good works things, it's not my thing is an excuse that the text blows out of the water. Because whereas faith alone saves, saving faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by the Siamese twin of good works. There's another excuse in our passage that some Christians or persons who just name Christ without being Christians use for not doing good works, and it's the I believe in God and that's enough excuse. I believe in God, and that's enough. Well, guess what? It says in verse 19 that the Jews believe in a monotheistic God. You believe that God is one. That's the Jewish people. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. If all we can say is we believe in God, that he's a monotheistic God, we're not much ahead of Satan. Or his demons. And so the excuse, the I believe in God, and that's enough excuse, doesn't hold water with God. Samuel Bradburn was an associate of John Wesley's, he was highly respected by his friends and used of God as a very effective preacher. On one occasion, he was in deep financial need. When Wesley learned of Bradburn's circumstances, he sent him the following letter. Dear Sammy, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Yours affectionately, John Wesley. But then attached to that letter was a five-pound note, then worth about $10, which in that currency of that day was about $1,000. This was Samuel Bradburn's reply to Wesley. Reverend and dear sir, I have often been struck with the beauty of the passage of Scripture quoted in your letter, but I must confess that I have never seen such a useful expository note attached before. A lie faith, church. A lie faith takes action. Living faith does something for somebody. Living faith is helpful and practical and generous. Back to Joanna when she was eight years old with her frog collecting live and dead she carried her living frogs in a big painter's kind of white pail that had a snap-on white plastic lid. It's really quite something. She was just a little eight-year-old girl, but she'd fill that with pond water, and she'd put her living frogs in that, and she would lug them to the best of her ability all around our yard, sloshing the pond water out of the bucket when she was having a difficulty if she overfilled it. But sometimes 
she failed to clip on the lid. And then the living frog went to his freedom. And when one saw Charlie jumping to his freedom, then Wally said, hey, we can jump out of this thing. Boom. Frogs jumped to their freedom because that's what living things do. They move. They think. That's what living faith does. It's live. Living faith gets up. Living faith gets out. Living faith gets going. And living faith doesn't wind up stinking. It passes the smell test. And so what do we have? And remember, when we say we, it's the collection of all of us as individuals. So let's say, what do I have? Could you ask yourself and ask the Lord in your pew right now, what do I have, Lord, living faith or dead faith? Does my faith reach out and do something to show my love for Jesus and others? Or does my faith all in my head, all in my Bible, and not in my life? There's a big difference between living faith and dead faith. Big difference. I wonder if our faith stinks with time or does our faith serve? There's a big difference. And these are very, very important questions for the man in the pulpit and for each of my friends in the pews. Now, when we come to verses 20 to 26, we come to two more excuses that some with dead faith and actionless faith have for their faith that's dead. And with these two more excuses come two illustrations from the Old Testament. The illustration of Abraham and the illustration of Rahab. I'm going to read verses 20 to 26. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so to review, we've seen two excuses that God doesn't buy as to why a person would have actionless dead faith. The first was, it's, it's, it's not my thing excuse. And the second excuse was, it's I believe in God and that's enough excuse. And then here in verse 22, we have two more excuses. The my faith works alone excuse, my faith works alone excuse. And the second or fourth of the list, the faith is complete. My faith is complete excuse. Now, first, these last two excuses, the my faith works alone excuse and my faith is complete excuse, they sound pretty good. In fact, they sound pretty theological. They sound pretty biblical. I mean, doesn't, isn't that the way it is? But God says, no, you've missed something. James, the human author of the book we're studying, is saying that 
Abraham had faith in God, but God required that Abraham demonstrate that faith with an incredible act of obedience. You remember the story. The child, the miracle biological child of promise, Isaac, given to daddy and mommy when they were aged, near 100 years old. The son of promise, Isaac, and God says, show me your faith in me by making him a human sacrifice. So the 16-year-old lad and his daddy over 100 trudged up to the place of the sacrifice. Most 16-year-old boys I know could fight off their 100-year-old grandfathers. But he didn't fight. Let his daddy tie him up with cords. Put him on the altar. Daddy, where's the lamb? Abram takes that knife. He's ready and about to plunge that knife into his son and kill him as in obedience to God. And God says, wait. And in the thicket was the animal sacrifice that God provided so that Isaac was not harmed. But Abraham's faith, was re- it was required of Abraham by God that it be demonstrated by the incredible, risky, painful, hard, good work of being willing to sacrifice his only biological son of promise with his wife. Wow. James is saying that Abraham's faith in God had to be demonstrated to be faith in God with an obedient action, obedient to the point of even taking his own son's life in obedience to God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, to whom we owe much, as you know, championed the cause of faith alone, salvation and justification. But it was Luther who wrote this about living faith. Quote, Faith is a living, busy, active, powerful thing. It is impossible for it not to do us good continually. It never asks whether good works are to be done, but has done them before there is time to ask the question. And it's always doing them. That's what Luther said about saving faith. That it's always accompanied by good works. Always. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So what about the, that deals with the my faith works alone excuse. Now let's deal with the excuse, the my faith is complete excuse. See it there in verses 22b through 24. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and was, he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's clear here that Abraham's action of starting to offer his son Isaac on the altar was what completed Abraham's faith. Charles Ryrie illustrates how good works complete a saving faith by citing the example of a train ticket. There are two parts to any passenger train ticket. And to be valid, the ticket has to have both parts still attached to each other on the perforated line. If you come to the conductor and have torn the ticket in half, 
he will not let you on the train. If you come to the conductor with only half of the train ticket, he will not let you on the train. If you come to the, with the other half, he will not let you on the train. The ticket for the train is a one ticket with two parts still attached. Saving faith and good works. Attached. Please look again at verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is troubling until you realize that James and his use of the terms justified and works and faith are not equivalent to Paul's usage of those same words, justified, works, and faith. The two inspired scripture authors are using the three terms slightly differently. In James, justification looks more at the end of one's life. It looks at whether the works done over one's redeemed life's lifetime were done in conjunction with real faith in Jesus. James' justification looks at the end of one's redeemed life. On the other hand, Paul, his view of justification looks at the beginning of a redeemed person's life and counts that all the works done before that conversion are unacceptable and non-meritorious deeds to earning one's salvation. Let's take the term works. In James, works in James are like Paul's fruit of the Spirit. But Paul calls a faith working through love. How about the term good works? For James, doing good works demonstrates the Christian's new life. For James, if you don't demonstrate the good works, you may not have Christ's new life. But for Paul, having the fruit of the Spirit demonstrates the Christian's new life. You don't have the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in your life. Pauline theology says maybe you're not saved. Of course, both are true. James and Paul are not in contradiction. The Bible does not contradict itself at any point. They're both true. But we have to understand they're using the terms differently. Now, I need to wrap things up by verses 25 and 26 with the illustration, amazing illustration, of Rahab. It was amazing on three levels at least. She was a Gentile. She was a woman, and she was a prostitute. And she is the example the Holy Spirit picked for James to write about. 25 and 26. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so this Gentile prostitute woman was converted. She lived in Jericho and she heard of the God of the invaders, the Jewish people, heard of the true and living God, his exploits on the other side of the Jordan River and then in the land of Canaan where she lived in Jericho and she came to believe in this God. But then she also welded to her belief in the true God her good works. She hid the spies of Israel in her home on her roof. And in so doing, she hid them from 
the soldiers so they would be not killed and they could safely get out of the city and to end their reconnaissance mission back to their general. She had faith in Israel's God, but she had good works welded to that faith and she hid the spies and she saw to it they had safe passage out of her house to where they had to go back. Rahab's faith was not alone. It acted. And because it acted, it was living faith. Rahab's faith was completed by her obedient and helpful actions. Like, what an interesting example. Living faith is like judging persons you meet. Just like when you meet a person you don't know yet, you cannot get past the fact that appearances may be deceiving. When you consider living faith, it's the same thing. Appearances can be deceiving. There's more that meets the eye, both with people you meet and with living faith. But let's use the example when it says that in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Right now, if you're looking at me, and I realize not everybody is, and that's okay, but if you're looking at me, you're seeing my body. That's what you're seeing. If you look long enough at me in and outside of the pulpit, you may get a glimpse into my soul, which is my intellect, my emotion, and my will. If you get to know me and watch me long enough, you might get a glimpse into my thinker, my feeler, and my chooser. But you can stare at me forever, and you will never get a glimpse of my spirit. That's God's to know. And see. And the illustration is that when a body dismisses its soul and spirit, it becomes physically dead. But saving faith that dismisses good works is dead faith. Could it be that you have an orthodox faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, but long ago you jettisoned, you threw out of your life doing any good works? If so, God says your faith is dead. There are Bahamians who we ought to love who have dropped dozens and dozens of eggs outside the food store on the sidewalk. And it's time for us to reach out with a quarter and say, I care a quarter's worth. How much do the rest of you guys care? That is a valid question that persons in need should ask. That is a valid question that we as a church must answer with Jesus' love and Jesus' mercy. Because that will be living faith. And that will be pleasing to a living Lord. There was a Christian in a church whose life was very clearly one that lacked any good works at all. And the pastor said to this parishioner, you know, I've noticed over time that you do not have any good works in your life. Are you really saved? And the man said, Pastor, 
The thief on the cross didn't do any good works and he got to go to paradise. The pastor replied, that's because he didn't get to go back to his neighborhood. We get to go back to our neighborhoods. We get to go back to our neighborhoods. Heavenly Father, oh, that we would have living faith. Living faith as individual believers and living faith as assembly. Lord, we know that people look on us and wonder if our faith is dead or alive. They watch us to see if our faith is sentimental or serving. They're waiting to find out if our faith lies still and smelly in a shoebox coffin. They're waiting to discover if our faith jumps out of a pail of pond water and practically helps them in their needs. Lord, you've asked us this morning, which faith will it be? And I pray for my life and my, the lives of my dear brothers and sisters, it would be living faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.